be looking at 2 Corinthians this evening as part of an occasional series I began this past summer. Backing up a couple verses from where we left off in the summer, we'll begin with the second half of verse 16 in chapter 2. Now, to refresh your memory a little bit up to this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul began this letter by speaking of suffering and comfort. He then went into a defense and explanation of his past actions. He gave directions for an ongoing situation in Corinth. And then he gave a description of his ministry. In much of this, he's dealing either directly or indirectly with opponents of his in Corinth. These are opponents who are questioning Paul's authority. They're claiming to be above him. They're saying that their ministry is superior to his. And Paul is defending himself against these accusations. And it's in light of that dispute that Paul writes our text for this evening. And so with that in mind, let's hear from our text, 2 Corinthians 2.16 to chapter 3, verse 3. And please do listen carefully. This is God's word for us this evening. Speaking of his ministry, Paul writes, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is God's word. As I said earlier, Paul is dealing with the question of how to evaluate the authenticity and genuineness of an apostle. This is what the dispute is in part about. Paul's opponents have suggested one way to evaluate the genuineness of an apostle. And in our text, Paul disputes the criteria that they have set up. He says the Corinthians are asking the wrong questions when they try to evaluate whether someone is an apostle or not. And for Paul, this is not just a technical matter. It actually has deep spiritual implications. Paul says that there are two opposing approaches for evaluating whether someone is a genuine apostle. But for Paul, these are not just two different types of apostle tests. It's not just like the difference between the SAT and the ACT. They're not just two different methods. For Paul, they represent two very different approaches to life and how we think about ourselves. They represent two very different approaches to spirituality and our relationship to God. And I'd like to contend tonight that if we look at ourselves closely, we can each find both of these approaches operating in our hearts and in our minds. But what we'll learn from Paul is that one approach is good and the other is not. One is valid and the other is fairly problematic. And so all the immediate context of this text from Paul is dealing with the question of evaluating spiritual leaders. What he has to say about it applies to us as well. And tonight I want to look at how these two opposing approaches to spirituality are at work in each one of us. So that is where we're heading with this text tonight. Now, to approach this text rightly, we must remember the central question that's at hand. It's a question of assessment. How do we assess someone? 
How do we evaluate someone? And maybe more importantly for us, when we evaluate ourselves, where do we look? When, we evaluate, when you evaluate yourself, what do you look to? I would argue that quite often, when we evaluate ourselves, we look to outward commendations and accomplishments. To outward commendations and accomplishments. Now, what do I mean by that exactly? Well, we can start by seeing how that idea is at work in our text. In verse 1, Paul points to two problematic approaches to proving the authenticity of an apostle. Self-commendation and letters of recommendation written in ink. Paul asserts that he is not doing the first, and he points out that the second has been the approach of his opponents. In fact, his opponents rely heavily on these letters of commendation. In verse 1, Paul implies that his opponents not only use letters of commendation to prove themselves to the Corinthians, but that they then in turn wanted letters of commendation from the Corinthians as they left and went on to the next city. In other words, Paul's opponents treated the spirituality of an apostle like any other kind of career advancement. You did some work here, you got a commendation, you moved to the next task, and you worked your way up the ranks by earning and gathering commendations. For Paul's opponents, spirituality is about acquiring and collecting these commendations like merit badges. And if anyone questioned their spirituality, they could point to these commendations or these accomplishments to prove themselves. And if someone didn't have these commendations, then their authenticity was suspect. But Paul takes issue with this. Paul says that this is not how Christian spirituality should be evaluated, and therefore not how our spiritual energy should be directed. In the introduction to his recent book, The Road to Character, David Brooks discusses a similar issue in our culture when it comes to thinking about virtue. Brooks puts it like this. He writes, Recently I've been thinking about the difference between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationships you formed. Most of us would say that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues, but I confess that for long stretches of my life, I've spent more time thinking about the latter than the former. Our education system is certainly oriented around the resume virtues more than the eulogy ones. Public conversation is too. The self-help tips in magazines, the non-fiction bestsellers. Most of us have clearer strategies for how to achieve career success than we do for how to develop a profound character. Brooks uses these categories of resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And I'd like to take them and to build on them a little bit, to use them a little bit more broadly than Brooks does. What we see in Paul's opponents is that they treat spirituality like building a resume. And a resume is about self-promotion, about acquiring commendations. Building a resume is about listing all of your measurable accomplishments, all the tasks that you've completed, all of the praise that you've received. And that's how Paul's opponents treat the question of apostleship. And it's also often how we approach spirituality. 
And the fact that we do that shouldn't surprise us that much. As Brooks points out in several places, our culture has encouraged us, has shaped us to live our lives as resume builders. And it's often made us into people who do that not just on the job market, but in all areas of life. And we need to step back and reflect on that a little bit. Because this resume building mentality shapes not only how we evaluate ourselves, but how we orient and direct our energy and our life. One of the reasons it's so tempting to approach life in terms of resume building is because items on a resume seem more manageable, more objective, more documentable. We can take a look at a list and know if we are adequate or not, sometimes with just a glance. And so we begin to think in those terms. And we begin to live like Paul's opponents, constantly presenting our past letters of commendation and trying to gather new ones. Now, these habits can be public or they can be private. It can be something we do in front of others or, more often, something we just do in our own head, in our private thoughts, when we ask ourselves how we really measure up. We can begin to acquire this habit early on. It can happen in school and often when we begin working. In these domains, the way we get ahead is to gather commendations and eventually to literally put together a resume. And really, in these particular situations, such an approach is right and proper. But then each of us, especially in our culture, is tempted to extend this approach to all of life. I think that social media tends to be a really good revealer of this tendency. Now, I don't know how much social media shapes us into people who do this versus how much it actually just reveals publicly, how much we're all doing it already in our heads. I suspect it's a little bit of both. But social media is a great revealer of this because on social media, we tend to take the parts of life most unfit for a resume, and we then begin to try to craft them into something like a resume. You can think about our social lives, for example. That's not something you might think of right away as a list of accomplishments or a tally of commendations. But on social media, it often is. On social media, we take our social events, whether it's attending a concert or going to a restaurant or having coffee with a friend, and we publish them for everyone to see. And then we can literally tally up how many people commend it, how many people like it. And so we not only take our social gatherings and we broadcast them to others to show them what we've done, but now we can quantify just how much social approval each event gets from other people. Family life can be another example. A family meal or a special outing between a married couple is not usually thought of as a resume-building activity. But many of us feel the need to take a picture and to post it on social media. We see it in other areas where a cute craft with kids, or a special outing with a child. Social media gives us the ability to publish these things and, again, to receive public commendation for them. Now, really, I don't mean to pick on anyone who does these things on social media. I do these things on social media. I really do. And so if you also, like me, tend to post these sorts of things, I'm not saying that you're worse than those who don't use social media. What I am trying to get at is that as a culture, social media shows that we are all tempted to treat, that we are all tempted to treat life in this way. 
whether we actually put it on social media or not. We're all tempted to treat life as an unending resume-building project. On social media, it's revealed publicly what each of us is probably doing in our heads already most of the time. We're each building a resume. We're each listing our objective accomplishments, our social connections, our clever comments, our parenting victories, and we're seeing how much praise we can get, tallying it up, constantly adding to the list, constantly refining the resume, constantly striving to prove that we are the best candidate. But if we stop and think, none of us is really sure what it is that we're applying for. And yet we often can't stop the impulse to think this way, the impulse to tally up our accomplishments and failures, the impulse to compare them with what we imagine other people are doing. But what's it for? What really is the goal? Where does the process end? Most of the time we're not really sure, but we keep building the resume. We keep updating it, whether it's online, on paper, or in our own minds. And we keep using it to evaluate ourselves. And more often than not, in our own eyes especially, when we look at that all-of-life resume we've put together, we feel that we come up short. Brooks puts it this way. He writes, People subtly start comparing themselves with other people's highlight reels. And of course, they feel inferior. We compare ourselves with other people's highlight reels. And in a sense, people have always done that. Many do it today on the Internet, but people have always done it in the privacy of their own thoughts. And so we tend to live our lives as resume builders. And when it comes to the big questions in life, to a holistic evaluation of our life lived before God, whether out loud with others, or in our minds as we lay in bed at night, we turn to quantifiable accomplishments and commendations to answer the question of who we are and how we've done. We write a resume with ink, with pixels, or just in our minds, and we either pass or we fail. What does that look like for you? How do you construct that all-of-life resume? One of the times that you tend to review it. And what is the verdict that you most frequently come to about yourself? In our text tonight, Paul tells us that this approach is not the best way to make a spiritual evaluation. In fact, he tells us this is a deeply flawed way to make a spiritual evaluation. Now, resumes and letters of recommendation written in ink and commendations of various kinds all have their proper place. Paul actually makes use of similar letters in 1 Corinthians 16 in a very different context than what he's dealing with here. So they do have a place. But the place of resumes and letters of commendation are in starting a relationship, not in drawing a final, final verdict on a person. And that is true whether we're talking about apostleship, as in our text, or reflecting on our spiritual lives, or evaluating our lives as a whole. A resume is not the proper basis of a verdict on our lives. And as a result, living our lives like resume builders is a serious mistake. So if we're not to look to our lists of accomplishments, if we're not to look to our commendations, then what should we look to to evaluate ourselves? And subsequently, how should we live our lives? Paul says here that we should look to our real investments in real people. 
Paul directs us to consider how our lives have affected and are affecting the people around us. And in a sense, this is how Paul seeks to authenticate his apostleship with the Corinthians. He points to the Christians in Corinth as his letter of recommendation. That is Paul's approach. That is his orientation. That is Paul's understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Paul looks to how he has affected other people. Let's take some time to reflect on that and how it plays out in our text to better understand it. I want to briefly note five things that we can see from Paul in this text about what it means to look to our loving investment in real people as a way of evaluating ourselves. The first thing that we can note is that it overlaps with what Jesus says in Matthew 7 about evaluating people by their fruits and what he says in John 13 about knowing that people are followers of Christ based on their love for one another. Paul is alluding to a a common principle. And in the same way as it was when Jesus talks about fruit and about love, this is a criteria that takes time to show up. Fruit takes time to grow. Love takes time to prove itself. Investment in others takes time to have an effect. The resume-building approach looks for a quickly acquirable list of commendations, accomplishments, or failures. But investing in other people, in real people, takes time. Second, we see that lovingly investing in others is both subjective and objective. In our text, Paul states that his loving investment in the Corinthians was written on his heart. He says that in verse 2. He then seems to say that it was also written on their hearts in verse 3. And then in addition to that, he says in verse 2 that it was something that was visible to everyone. There's both a subjective and an objective component to this loving investment. In other words, on the one hand, it was not merely external. It was not merely a list of deeds that Paul did for them, but something written on his own heart and something that became written on the hearts of those he loved as well. On the other hand, it's not merely a sentiment. Paul says that it was visible to all. That means there, was a vi- there were visible, objective components to it. There were outward deeds of love. It was not one or the other, but both. Real loving investment in others is both internal and subjective on the one hand, and external and objective on the other hand. Third, this letter was written on hearts. This letter that was written on hearts, this loving investment in others was written by the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 3. And that means that it was not a simple task that Paul could do on his own. It was not self-produced. It was actually a product of God working through Paul. This kind of letter written on hearts is evidence not of how capable we are, but of the fact that God is at work through us. It is not something that we earn but something that God does through us. Fourth, this criteria is not easily quantifiable. How do you evaluate the fruit of Paul's ministry? How do you evaluate his effect on the Christians in Corinth? The process is more like evaluating a meal than it is like totaling a spreadsheet. It's more like evaluating a musical performance than it is like adding up merits and demerits on a checklist. Such criteria requires a palate more than a calculator. Fifth and finally, what we see is that the kind of fruit Paul points to is imperfect. 
Paul is asked for his credentials, and he points to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is basically a mess. It has all sorts of problems. It's not a shining example of what we all want our church to be like. And yet the Corinthian church is Paul's fruit. And Paul declares here that it is good fruit. Definitely not perfect fruit, but still good fruit. And so instead of a list of achievements, commendations, and quantifiable measurements, Paul points to how he has affected others. He points to his loving investment in other people. Unlike a quickly assembled resume, Paul points to fruit that takes time to show up in other people. Unlike an abstract list of accomplishment, Paul's points to fruit that is both objective and subjective in the lives of others. Unlike a self-sufficient and self-aggrandizing commendation, Paul points to fruit that he could not produce by himself. But where he had to rely heavily on God to work both in him and in the people around him. Unlike a series of numerical measurements and test scores, Paul points to fruit that cannot be easily quantified. And unlike a glowing letter of recommendation, Paul points to fruit that was obviously, on its face, imperfect. Paul's approach to evaluating spirituality is very different from the resume-building approach that we are often tempted to take. Paul's approach looks more like what David Brooks has in mind when he points to eulogy virtues as opposed to resume virtues. No one lists a person's test scores in a eulogy. We all know that a good eulogy of a life well-lived will not be a collection of titles and commendations. It will not be a series of abstract or objective measurements. It will be about how the person has affected those around them, how they have lovingly invested in friends and family, how they have lovingly served others, how they've changed other people's lives. And those kind of effects are rarely achieved through grand gestures. Sometimes they are. But more often they are brought about through common and persistent loving actions, regular concern for another person's heart, ordinary acts of faithfulness, like daily watering and weeding. It is this that produces a beautiful life that reflects Christ in the long run. A fruit tree is another good picture of this. It's one thing to take a fruit tree and to measure its trunk or to examine its root structure or to look at the number of branches it has. But this is just an initial evaluation. This is just a resume-like evaluation. This is just what Paul's opponents want to do. It's often the type of things that we want to focus on. But the real question is whether the tree will grow fruit and how will that fruit taste That is what Paul wants us to look for when he directs our attention to the fruit of lovingly investing in other people. For another example of this difference, you could also consider a difference between myself and Pastor Rayburn. Now, don't panic. I'm going to go somewhere all right with this. Just hang in there with me for a minute. A little over two years ago, a search committee from this church evaluated me to decide whether they should call me as their assistant pastor or not. And one of the things they looked at was that I graduated from seminary. And with that, they were interested in how I did there, what my GPA was and things like that. I was just starting out, and so my seminary diploma was very important to me. 
you know, you can go into Pastor Rayburn's office and his seminary diploma from the same school that I attended is hanging over the wall in his office. But really, his diploma is not that important anymore. It was an important resume item at one time, but now that it's produced the fruit that it was supposed to, it's not as important in and of itself. Now that one can look to 37 years of faithful ministry, to the lives of real people who have been changed, to a church that's been shaped over the course of decades by his faithful, loving investment in real people, now that you can see that, the commendation of a seminary degree is of much less importance than it once was. In fact, if a pastor is still asserting his authenticity as a pastor by appealing to his seminary degree 37 years into ministry, something is probably seriously wrong. And so it is with us. Credentials, objective accomplishments, individual deeds and commendations, they have their place, but they're all meant to be means towards an end. Like a good trunk on a fruit tree is supposed to be a means towards producing fruit, or a seminary degree is supposed to be a means towards a successful ministry. Paul's opponents have taken a means and made it their final goal. Paul has corrected them, and in doing so, he also corrects us. Paul would not have us look to our resumes to evaluate ourselves, whether it be our career resume, our family resume, our spiritual resume, or something else. He wants us to look towards the fruit. And in looking towards the fruit, he wants us to work towards the fruit. And the fruit is blessing other people. Working towards the fruit is lovingly investing in other people. So what does that look like? It means putting other people before our prestige. It means valuing our coworkers not just for what we can get from them, but caring for them as people. It means a concern for the good of those we minister to, and not just a desire to receive praise from them. It means we try to find ways to lovingly invest in our spouse, rather than treating them and their accomplishments like a merit or demerit on our personal resume. It means approaching parenting not as a list of tasks we need to complete to justify ourselves as good parents, but as a daily, difficult, and never perfect investment that we make in members of our family so that they might flourish. It means pouring ourselves into our children for the long term rather than treating them like badges of honor when they do well or marks of shame when they are imperfect. It means not just finding friends who boost our social status, but making friends who we want to care for, who we want to give ourselves to. It means putting away the calculator we're using to constantly try to tally up our own worth, to constantly measure how we stack up to others and loving those other people instead. It means that household tasks are done not primarily to prove that we're good enough, but to bless those in our family. It means that the things we do, the things we say, the tasks we complete, and the care that we give are not about us, but about the other person. It means we live our lives trying to cultivate fruit rather than comparing the number of branches on our tree to the next one. It means we think of life more like cultivating a eulogy, which will come from the hearts of the people who know us best, and less like crafting a resume that lists our good deeds with paper and ink. As we think about it, most of us will admit that this is how we would like to live our lives. 
but it's not easy. And as we seek to orient our lives this way, we need to keep a few things in mind. First of all, this kind of fruit, as we have said, takes time. It's like starting a farm. You do not plant on Monday and expect to reap on Tuesday. This kind of fruit requires days of ordinary faithfulness, which turn into weeks, which turn into months, which turn into years, which turn into decades. You're not working on a resume. You're working on a eulogy. It takes a lifetime. Second, we need to remember that we will regularly, we will almost daily, be tempted to revert to resume building, especially when we feel threatened, when we feel insecure, when we fail. When we feel inadequate, we will want to go back to thinking of our lives like a resume. We need to be ready to combat that. We need to be ready to reorient ourselves again and again. Third, we need to remember that this kind of fruit is always imperfect. It will never be what you want it to be. Your kids will never be perfect fruit. Your spouse will never be perfect fruit. Your friends will never be perfect fruit. The people you minister to, who you you pour yourself into, who you love, will never be perfect fruit. But whenever you're ashamed or embarrassed or angry that your kids or spouse or friends or those who you serve are imperfect, remember that Paul's fruit was the Corinthians. And remember that Jesus' fruit is you. And you are not perfect. And that brings us to the fourth and final thing we need to keep in mind as we try to live in this way. How do we handle the fact that our fruit is never what we want it to be? How do we handle our failures? What do we do when we feel like we are not good enough? What do we do when we try to follow Paul's advice and pour our lives into other people, but we know that we're not up to the task? It is then that we need to remember that we are Christ's letter of recommendation to the world. We are the fruit of his ministry. Jesus says as much in John 17. In John 17, 13, Jesus says that the unity and love between God's people will be the way that the world knows that Jesus was sent by God. He essentially says that the church is Christ's letter of recommendation to the world. This means a few things. It means that Jesus is at work in us to make us more and more able to do these things, to make us more and more able to love others well. It also means that Christ already loves us and has claimed us as his own. And the fact that he loves us, the fact that we are already his, frees us from frantically trying to justify ourselves and prove our value. We do not need to justify ourselves because we can rely on God's justification for us. We do not need to earn acceptance because we have already have it in Christ. We can stop frantically filling out the resume in our head because Christ has already accepted us. And because of that, we can see our calling to lovingly invest in others as a mission given by a loving God and not as a project to construct the basis for our justification. And with that in mind, we can pursue this. Like Paul, we can rely on God's help. Like Paul, we can value both the objective and the subjective aspects of investing in others. Like Paul, we can see the value in the good but imperfect fruit that God will produce through our work. If our focus is on self-justification, 
then our grasping at commendations and accomplishments is really always about us, about proving ourselves. Instead, Paul directs us to pour ourselves into other people, not to justify ourselves, but to imitate our God who has poured himself into us. And investing in other human beings is really the most lasting fruit that there is. It's a more long-term investment than any accomplishment or commendation. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, which I've quoted from the pulpit here before, C.S. Lewis argues that one of our biggest problems when it comes to relating to other human beings is that we forget that they will last for eternity. We forget the basic Christian doctrine that every human will either be incredibly glorified for all eternity, or if they reject God, will turn grotesquely inward on themselves for all of eternity. Lewis puts it this way. He writes, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What is Lewis saying? Nations rise and fall. Institutions and cultures come and go, but individual human beings will last forever. Their lives stretch on into eternity. Our Heavenly Father has made it so, and as a result, he has invested himself in his people. He has invested himself in us. Trusting in his love for us and acceptance of us, let us imitate him and do likewise, pouring ourselves into others as Christ poured himself into us. Amen.